Welcome to Season 2 of the Glorium Deo Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Thompson. In this episode, I'm posting a conversation I had in 2021 with Professor William R. Cook. I first learned of Professor Cook while listening to his lectures on the Great Courses series. During our conversation, we spoke for more than an hour on topics ranging from his conversion to Catholicism, St. Francis of Assisi, and his charitable international work through his foundation. Rather than editing and narrating this episode, I'm going to post it in long form. Thanks for listening. I'm a medieval historian. I studied with a medieval historian at Cornell who specialized in the 14th and 15th century, primarily canon law. Uh, I taught history for 42 years at the State University of New York in Geneseo which is generally regarded as sort of the liberal arts college of the, this great big mega university that we call SUNY, the State University of New York. Uh, I taught medieval history, church history. Uh, I taught courses of the Renaissance and Reformation. Uh, we had a great books course I taught every semester for 30 years. Uh, I taught a course in, um, in Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and that leads me to the topic of in 1998, I decided to run for Congress of the United States in the 27th District of New York. And I did it because I was, I've always been sort of a political junkie, but I was watching television one day, uh, and my favorite channel is C-SPAN. That's what a boring person I can be. And my congressman was at a markup for a piece of legislation that would have been incredibly bad for our district. It was a piece of legislation that said there'd be no federal funds to go to a hospital to support a medical doctor not trained in the United States. Well, I live in a rural area of Western New York, and the hospital nearest me, almost all the doctors were not taught in the United States. We can't get doctors to come. We can't get residents to come. It's not a, it's not a, a research hospital or a teaching hospital or any of that sort. So this would have been a disaster for our district. But this guy was allied to the speaker at the time, who happened to be Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich wanted this bill. And so without ever looking up, without ever paying attention to the testimony, he voted against it. And I thought to myself, hell, I could do better than that. So I started asking around about his last re-election, which I barely remembered. I remembered I voted for the other guy, but I didn't remember who the other guy was. It turns out Nobody remembered who the other guy was because he was the next-door neighbor of the Democratic chair in Buffalo. In other words, he was just a placekeeper so that my, uh, Bill Paxson would not run unopposed. So I started asking around, and before you know it, since Bill Paxson was a five-term incumbent in a very red district, it looked like uh, he was going to win easily. So the Democrats sort of chose me to be the sacrificial lamb of the year. And then a few weeks after they chose me, uh, Bill Paxson decided not to run for re-election, so it became an open seat, which made it a very different contest. So I had very little money. I took a semester off from teaching. I ran for Congress. I was in all 99 towns and villages in our district. I loved it, and I came fairly close to winning. So that's, that's a total of my political career. Um, after I retired in 2012 uh, and did a couple years of sort of usual retiring for an academic, read a lot, wrote a couple articles, and so on, I decided to start the Bill Cook Foundation, which is a 501c3 charity that helps poor children go to school all around the world. 
Uh, we work in 31 countries now. Actually, I just sent money to Burundi yesterday, the first time we sent any money there. And except for COVID time, I'm usually away from home, either meeting in the United States with donors or potential donors or visiting Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, the Balkans, East and West Africa, Central America, South America, seeing how things are going, seeing if we can fix them, seeing if there are any big problems that that would make us want to leave one program and start another one. So uh, that's the story of the last 50 years of my life. Thank you. So can you talk about your spiritual journey and uh, your call to service, your relationship with God, how that has developed, uh, including your conversion to Catholicism, your, your, and, and if you, and later, I hope you'll balance that with your, your, your studies on church history, etc. But, uh, at, sure. at this point, maybe you could talk about your personal call in, in, in all that. Sure. I, I was, I was raised an Episcopalian, uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was a choir boy and that usual Anglican way where you wear ruffled collars and stuff. Oh, God, that was fun. And I, and I, was, I was a pretty good singer. Um, remained an Episcopalian through high school, through college, and through graduate school, although I must say, especially as I got to graduate school, even though I was studying church history, um, I didn't have any sense of a connection to a particular church or denomination. In fact, I realized several years after I left Ithaca, where Cornell is, I don't believe I ever set foot in the Episcopal Church in the four years I was in Ithaca. But I had taken a theology course as a senior in college where we read Bonhoeffer and Tillich and a lot of modern theologians. We had as our guest for two weeks a famous British theologian named John A.T. Robinson. And one of the things that course did for me, taught by a Presbyterian minister, by the way, one of the things that course did for me was to make me think about the church not so much as a history or a set of rituals, but that something that had to adapt to the modern world. Even churches that try to stay the same don't and can't, uh, whether they admit it or not. And so, you know, for example, I remember Robinson in his book, Honest to God, had a chapter called The Liturgy Coming to Life. And what he talks about is the fact that when you go to liturgy, and of course, again, I was an Episcopalian at the time, what, you, what you're doing is living a kind of expression of the Christian life through the symbols and through very simple things like the kiss of peace. You know, the person who's right behind you, you might dislike or disagree with on everything, but you genuinely offer them the kiss of peace. And his, But his point was that that's one, one hour a week, essentially, the question is, how do you take that experience and try to live a better life the other 167 hours a week in terms of the way you treat people, uh, the way you enjoy beauty, the, you know, all the, different, all the different factors in life? And so this was one of those ideas that made me want to think about the role of the church in the world. Well, I did my graduate research partly in Prague and partly in Oxford. And in Oxford, I was able to attend a week of lectures by the Orthodox Bishop of basically all of Western Europe named Anthony Bloom. And he taught a, he taught a week-long course on prayer. 
because I had not learned much about the prayer and contemplative side of Christianity. I just reread his book recently, and I realized why I thought so much of it. I still think a lot of it as he talked about prayer. Um, when I came to Geneseo, I, I started going to the Episcopal Church again. You know, it's one of those things you move and you sort of start up some things again. And I didn't feel very welcome there or very comfortable there. Uh, I, I now get along really well with the priest who wasn't the priest 50 years ago, obviously, and have a lot of friends in that community. But it, I think part of it was just simply as hard for a single person to, you know, come into a social situation where virtually everybody else is in a couple. But anyway, I, I sort of drifted away from it a little bit almost as soon as I started there. But there's also a Trappist Abbey five miles from me, the Abbey of the Chelsea, which is where Henry Nowen lived for six months, by the way. And since I was teaching medieval history, I went out to meet the abbot, who was brand new at that time, named John Youth Van Berger. He just died last year. And I was basically going to say, hey, I'm a pretty lucky guy. I'm teaching medieval history, and right here near Geneseo, there's a medieval institution, and you guys live under the rule of St. Benedict, can I bring my students out? And so I began to go to the monastery primarily as an academic exercise with my students. But I had a kind of, a kind of crisis, I guess I would say. Uh, in 1973, um, one of my colleagues died very suddenly, and almost the same day, in fact, their funeral was the same day, one of my students was killed in an accident. And I needed some place to to pray and to express myself to God, and I found that the monastery was that place rather than the Episcopal Church in town. So I began to, I guess you'd say, hang out at the monastery or perhaps even become something of a monastic, um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of groupie. Uh, all monasteries have a few groupies. That summer, I went to Italy because my research in Czechoslovakia was over. It was hard to work in Czechoslovakia, and I'm a church historian. So where are you going to go to find a new thing to study? Well, you, you go to Italy. Uh, the church is there, and the food's good. So, you know, what's not to like about going to Italy? So I headed to Italy. I traveled all around. I'd been to Italy before. But I went to Assisi and stayed a few days primarily to see the historical monuments and the art, which is spectacular. And a couple of things happened. I had read Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis when I was a graduate student. And like a lot of people, I think, when you first run into St. Francis, the first thing you think of, this guy's batty. You know, this just is kind of kooky. You know, talk, the, the sort of talking to birds, picking worms off the road kind of thing. Now, I had refined my view some because being a medieval historian, you have to give lectures on St. Francis and the friars and the, and, the, and the whole mendicant movement. But when I got to Assisi, I got a copy of the Bonaventure book, turned out the same translation I'd read in graduate school. And in Assisi, it began to make sense. Now, part of that was Assisi, and part of that was the fact that I was obviously evolving and thinking in somewhat different ways. And I particularly got interested in the way the art told the story of his life and how beautiful and powerful that was. Because I could be sitting on a hill reading Bonaventure, who has all the stories that appear on those frescoes, and then I could go walk in the church and see the, if you will, the illustrated version of Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis. And I said to myself, you know, 
I think this is what I want to study. I think I want to study this man, and I think I want to study especially how the various artists, not just the ones who worked in Assisi, told his life and how that developed and changed over time. Well, that's been my research for the last 45 years. Uh, I've written books on Franciscan art. I've written two of them. I've written a lot of articles. And I wrote a biography of St. Francis that was published in 1989, I think. Still in print, by the way. I hope, I don't, hope you don't mind the plug. And um, at any rate, I then really did begin to move toward Roman Catholicism. And I was, in fact, confirmed and welcomed into the church uh, at the Easter Vigil in 1975 at the Abbey of the Genesee. I was confirmed by Abbot John Hughes. So I really came into the church through Trappist and Franciscans, essentially. And, uh, I, you know, you have your good and bad moments in anything you're connected to and feel passionate about. I mean, the church has a lot of sadness in it as well as a lot of joy. But I don't think I've ever, even for a moment, doubted that that's what, that was the right thing for me. I made the right choice. And when people ask me, you know, you're a historian, you know all that bad stuff about the church, don't you? And I said, yeah, of course I do. Um, and all of it happened in the Middle Ages, I might add. And they said, well, you know, why, why did you choose it then? And... I said, well, I guess the, 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 the greatest strength and the greatest weakness of the Catholic Church are they've been around 2,000 years. And that means a lot of things. It means that the Church has made a lot of mistakes, whether it's supporting slavery or, uh, you know, having that, that, the, some of those horrible Renaissance popes and so on and so forth. But also look at the changes and the good that the Church has done. The church has been around for 2,000 years. We look at the United States, been around for 240 years now, and many people are starting to say what a rickety old institution it is. Catholic Church has been around almost 10 times that long, and yet it's rickety in some ways too. But the very fact that it has survived and adapted to radically different circumstances in the world, and as doing that today, I see it all the time as I travel around and work, work in fact, with Franciscans in in Kenya, I work with nuns in uh, Myanmar, I work with nuns in Laos, I work with a Catholic organization called Covenant House in Guatemala and Honduras. I see, I see the church doing these wonderful things, and I see it looking different. One of the recent things I've been studying is how the life of Christ is depicted in different cultures. You know, we, we read about the black Jesus, but there's also the Asian Jesus, and the Latino Jesus and all the rest of it. And of course, there's the blonde Jesus that we're so used to, and none of those is historical. Jesus didn't look Chinese, and he didn't look Indian, and he didn't look Latino, and he wasn't an African, uh, but he certainly wasn't a blonde guy. And so I've really been interested in the universality of the church. Every country I've been in, even China and places like that, on Sunday, I've been able to go to Mass in the language that's there, but, you know, with the liturgy that I'm comfortable with and familiar with, and often with art I can read, even whether it's copies of European art, there'll be a Leonardo da Vinci Last Supper copy, or whether it's the local art of the people, as I discovered in Laos, for example, and other places as well. So I've always felt comfortable, uh, not, all, not always joy-filled at certain moments in the church's development uh, in the in the 
essentially 55 years I've been Catholic, but I've never said, why did I do that? Or you know, should I go back to being Episcopalian? Or I, I, I've never had those thoughts. By the way, I love the Episcopal Church. I, I, I didn't leave it because I didn't like it. I left it because I thought I found a more authentic form of Christianity. And I respect, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the genuineness of Christian expression in all denominations. I've spent a lot of time in the Orthodox world. I traveled around Romania for a while in Georgia and whatever, and I love the Orthodox liturgy. Uh, I, I've had a chance actually to speak with the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew on two occasions, actually. Uh, I think he's a great man, a great heroic man, uh, a friend of now uh, three popes. And so, you know, the, the more I travel and look, despite my, my problems with certain elements of our church or the conduct of certain people in the church, I feel, I feel good and confident when I proclaim myself a Roman Catholic. Great. Can you talk about uh, stories of individuals you've helped with your foundation? Uh, you know, sure. Concrete sure. Let, examples. Let me tell you one like, story that, that I'm, I'm sort of proud of, but I think you'll, you'll see how this works. For many years in Geneseo, where I live in New York, I did an annual dinner to raise money for Covenant House, which is, a, which is an organization based in New York, founded by a Franciscan, that worked with street kids in New York and now in other cities in the United States and in Latin America. And so I raised money for them for years and years and years and years. Uh, we had a dinner every year that I ran. Well, I decided since my foundation works outside the United States in very poor countries, I would start by looking in Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua at their covenant house, Casa Alianza, they call it. And I was at the one in Guatemala City. It's a home for 60 trafficked girls. It's a, it's a sad place in many ways. But the... The people who run it, I'm very impressed by. And, you know, the girls are in different stages in terms of, do they want to talk to some strange man who's in their space right now, which you have to respect. But I liked the place and wanted to do something for it and just happened to notice as I was walking around, there was a room called the music room. And I asked, you know, do you have a music program? And they said, well, we've got a guitar. And we have a part-time music teacher, and the girls really like music, just like they like art. And she showed me that the interior of the walls where they live is painted with art. She said, you know, art allows them to express themselves, so on. It's wonderful. So I always thought about that. I didn't do anything, but I thought about it. We gave them some money to do some educational things. But a few summers later, I was hiking around Denali National Park in Alaska, and I stopped to relax for a while, and a guy came up. We started talking. And he turns out to be the incoming president of the International Clarinet Society. So we got talking about what we do. And he said, you know, we've always wanted to get clarinets to people who wouldn't traditionally have the chance to play clarinet. We love our instrument. I said, hmm, I got an idea. So fast forward a year, I got five clarinets from them. I got a couple more from other people. And I sent the clarinets to Guatemala. And then my foundation paid for a full-time music teacher. In the meantime, I posted this on Facebook, and one of my former students wrote me and said, my dad makes wooden flutes. Would you like wooden flutes? Love them. So I got wooden flutes and sent them to Guatemala, and now they're making this little orchestra. So I was down to visit last year, 
from going back to two weeks. And they said, you know, this is Guatemala. We need a marimba. Well, marimbas are expensive. But a friend of mine is on the board of the, of the charitable society of the Grateful Dead. So I said, do you think the Grateful Dead would be willing to buy them a marimba? Well, they did. And so now they've got a marimba, somebody gave them some drums, they've got flute, they've got clarinets, they've got the guitar, they've got a music teacher, and they make music. I've seen several videos they've made, although you can't see the faces of the girls because there are guys looking to find out where their, where their profits went. So at any rate, uh, we've got this wonderful music program where 60 girls are learning to express themselves and, and just sort of let loose and have fun and, and create and create something beautiful, which is wonderful for them. So I like this kind of thing is what we do. We look for people on the ground. We find ways to help them. We try to connect them to other kinds of resources and try to be creative. And so if you ever hear about uh, the, the, you know, formerly trafficked girls uh, band in Guatemala, that's how it came into being. Can you give a, 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 a like a, a description of the, the the scope of your foundation, the financial sure. size, sure. The, the major donors? Sure. sure. We we raise about a half million dollars a year, which is a lot of money for a small foundation. We have no paid employees, so all the money goes to projects, and. We do all kinds of different things. I suppose the most simple and most common thing we do is we pay school fees for children, either in non-government schools and sometimes in government schools. So, for example, we pay for about 50 orphans and about 30 other kids to go to school in rural Uganda. Uh, we pay the school fees for all the girls at a big orphanage in Vietnam who qualify to go to high school. So a lot of what we do is pay school fees. We have built schools. We actually have Bill Cook High School in South Sudan, where we worked with one of the Lost Boys. And we're now in the process of being the main funder of building the first high school for girls in the entire country of South Sudan. We work with homeless kids to try to find them ways to go to school. We, again, support organizations like orphanages. Um, we pay high school fees. We've sent a lot of students to college. We've had graduates from Kenya, from Honduras, from Cambodia. I actually have in my house now a student from Cambodia living with me and going to university at the university where I taught. So we do what needs to be done. L library books. We've given over 20,000 library books to schools in Kenya, Uganda, and South Sudan. We've built six preschools in Sri Lanka, for example. Uh, we are working with, with the daughters of prostitutes in a slum in India. What we do is look around, there, you know, find somebody who's trying to start a program locally or a program that started that does good things and needs to grow. We doubled the size of a program for Roma children in Kosovo, for example, uh, by giving the organization that runs it uh, they needed $18,000. We didn't have quite that much to give them. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we do a matching grant? If you raise nine, we'll give you nine. You'd be surprised how quickly people raise nine when every dollar counts for two, essentially. So we do 
what needs to be done. So we work with university students. We have programs for disabled students. We have a program for uh, deaf students, the only deaf school in Equatorial Guinea we're the primary sponsor for. And we just developed this year a program for Down syndrome kids in rural Peru where we recruited some university students to become their teachers after being trained by professors at their university. We thought there was one Down syndrome child, then we found out there were two, now we have 10, and we guess that as the word gets around up in the villages, up in the mountains, this is again, rural Peru, uh, probably next year it's gonna be 20. And we may actually have to have more than one venue to do that. So that's a sort of range of the things we do. So can you tell me why all of that matters? Why did, why did, you know, if you're somebody in, uh, well, not getting into like people who are narrow-minded and only focused on the United States, but yeah. why does service matter? Why does helping those individuals matter? Like what, 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 what drives you to do all that? That, that takes a lot of energy. It, 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 it does. Um, obviously I have theological answers. Um, which, you know, where, where the easy thing to say is, you know, read the Sermon on the Mount, read Matthew 25, uh, read the Lord's Prayer, read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and so on. But let me let me give you the sort of, to use a phrase from Tocqueville, actually, what I think our self-interest rightly understood is. We live, you know, one of the things I ask people is, think about the last 75 years. Where have there been wars that involved the United States and the death of Americans? And they start naming the countries. Of course, they name Korea, Vietnam. Uh, they, they might name the, you know, the, the uh, uh, Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, we can go on and on and on. And, and Guatemala and other places. I said, what do those places all have in common? They don't have democratic governments, and they have largely uneducated population and almost no civil society. How many, we've not fought any democracy in a long, long time, if ever. So if we can help to educate people so they can participate in civil society, and so they can also know enough to live in a, to, to want a democratic government and actually to be able to make it work, it is in our interest to educate those folks. Um, right now, we have one student in Myanmar, for example, we have a lot of kids do other things. We have one that's going to university. You know what he's been doing the last six weeks? He's been marching every day for democracy because he knows enough from his study at university to know that, that, you know, that's the kind of world he wants to live in. And it's really interesting to get his almost daily, you know, snip of video uh, and, and so on. Well, we're trying to provide education for people so they can be citizens. Um, I heard a very good scholar once say, you can have a democratic constitution in six months, you can have, an, you can have a market economy in six years, but it may take 60 years to build a civil society, and we don't have a civil, we don't have 60 years. So I see us doing good work from a worldly perspective, from the perspective of people who believe in democracy and people's right to be governed by people that they choose. And I think what we're doing is very, very wise. I think also that 
the more democracies that emerge, we're going to find with democracies, we can deal with them a lot better than we can deal with authoritarian governments. I mean, the United States, what does it do with, with Myanmar or Laos? Uh, we, we condemn them or we, or we you know, throw, throw them a fig leaf or whatever. We need to have a more just world, and that's going to be a more peaceful and prosperous world where we benefit as well as other people in the world. So uh, I'm, I really do see it as self-interest rightly understood. Obviously, there are all kinds of arguments from a specifically religious point of view. And by the way, we teach Christians, we teach Muslims, we teach Buddhists. We, we sent two Buddhist monks to university in Laos a while ago. So we teach people of all faiths. We teach Hindus in India, obviously. Um, so we, we are a Catholic organization, but certainly the inspiration for me is, you know, I, I don't have to read much more than, than Matthew 25, 31 to 46. You know, if you feed the hungry and, and, and house the homeless and visit, visit those who are in prison and so on, uh, then you've done that for Christ. I mean, one of the things that, that's been such a discovery for me, and I'm an old guy, I'm 77 years old. I go to an orphanage every year in Vietnam in Benhua, which is an hour outside of Saigon. We had a, there was a big military base there during the Vietnam War. And there's an orphanage filled full of kids who are severely disabled from Agent Orange, which God knows we spread all over Vietnam and Laos and a little bit of Cambodia. And, you know, when you, when you look at them or when you see a picture of them in a book or on TV, you know, the first thing is to sort of shudder in horror. And because they're, they're, they're so deformed, they're so unable to do anything. Some of them not only don't have eyes, they don't have places for eyes. I mean, there's just simply no place for an eye. And, you know, the, the, the first thing I think we all sort of naturally shrug away. I now love going to visit those kids because I hold their hands. They can't speak. They can't move. Some of them, they're all be, they'll all die before they're 20 years old. And if somebody says, can you tell me why God let that happen? That's way, you know, way beyond me. All I know is they're children of God. And I learned this from St. Francis. Francis asks this very simple question. If God created me and God created a leper, that means the leper and I have the same father. So what does that make us? It makes us brother or brother and sister, right? That, that's, that's Francis's logic. And if you use that logic, it's an extraordinarily liberating, radical thing. And when I visit them, these kids, I hold all their hands, I talk to them, I know they can't understand anything I say. And when I walk away, I'm happy. I'm not sad. And when I've gone with people, they say, you know, why are, that's really depressing. No, it isn't. I just enjoyed the company of brothers and sisters. By the way, the Asian Orange kids are almost all males. I don't know why that is. It just seems to be the situation. But at any rate, you know, it's been such a revelation and, and, and a, a joyful experience for me. I mean, yes, you see a lot of misery, uh, and, you have to, and you have to struggle with that when you see, you know, what you see that's all on TV all the time, the, the kids with the round bellies and, 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 and people with, you know, very various kinds of physical situations, but my experience has been such a liberation for me that I feel very good saying to people, 
I wish you could, and I really mean it, I wish you could come with me. I, I brought some of my donors, in fact, to various places in Africa. I mean, places that should depress the hell out of them. And yet, I think they see, they begin to see and experience what I see and experience. And again, they leave concerned, but not depressed. They, they leave joyful in a certain way. And I think that's an extraordinary thing. I took my 19-year-old grandson to Africa. Uh, to Uganda and to Kenya, some pretty difficult places. I mean, we, we literally had to, you know, sort of tiptoe through some feces to get to a place where my foundation actually had just built toilets for a school. Um, and, you know, the first thing they go is, oh, this is disgusting. And the second thing is, after you get to where you're going and you meet those kids and you see what your being there and your dollars did for those kids, it's... It's not a time to be unconcerned. It's not a time to stop caring. It's, but there is a time for joy in all this. So people ask me all the time, aren't you depressed all the time? No. I think I'm a pretty happy guy. Thanks. Uh, can you, uh, I guess, backing up to uh, church history, and uh, I guess I'd, I'd like you to comment on two things. First is... Uh, or, or second is ecumenic, ecumenicism. Is that it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Ecumenism. Okay. But first is apostolic secession amidst, you know, you talked about the council versus the pope versus the multiple popes versus simony yep. versus kings appointing bishops. Like, how do you make sense of all that? Like, that, 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 that confuses me. It, it it's almost serves as an excuse to say that there, the Holy Spirit is not actively there, that, you know, it's all politics, and it's all, you know, some Machiavellian, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so I do. How, I do. How do you, how, and I know you've thought a lot about that, that's why I'm asking you. Well, I, I start out usually by saying to people, you know, the, the church, for believers anyway, is is a holy institution, God, you know, created by God, you know, blessed by Jesus, you know, all, all the rest. It's also, however, a human institution. I mean, we don't say that about the U.S. government. The U.S. government's a human institution. I mean, it may be that, that you know, behind it is some theory of God, but, but it's not like the church. The church really is both a sacred and profane institution. It's not one or the other. It's not one at some times and other at the other times. It's both. I mean, today, you know, the Pope has no political power, but, you know, just the other day there was an article about, you know, still more problems with the, with the budget of the Pope and whether some money has been, you know, siphoned off to this, that, and the other thing. That's always going to be because the Church is both, and it's the only institution at least we believe in, I think, where it is both, both you know, fully sacred and fully profane. And so there are going to be a lot of contradictions and we're going to see the church as doing not all the good it can do and sometimes doing evil. To, to reject that idea, to say, well, okay, you know, the, you know the, these, these popes in the ninth century who were doing all these things, or take any other century, actually, the 16th century or whatever, uh, they were doing God's work even though they didn't quite know it. And, you know, God is with them every step of the way. Maybe, but it's pretty invisible. So I think if we start recognizing 
that it is uniquely in human history for me, both a sacred and a secular institution. And in a sense, has to be both, at least since the time of Constantine. Um, you know, we, 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 would, we would expect there to be lots of scandals. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, you know, how has the church stumbled through 2,000 years where it's still on this planet, there are more than a billion people who adhere to it? Um, can you imagine any, any there, there's a famous story, oh, let me tell you a medieval story. Maybe, maybe, this, maybe this is a good way to explain it. There's a famous story in the 13th century, this Parisian Catholic merchant living next to a Jewish merchant. And the Catholic merchant is always saying to the Jewish merchant, you really got to become Christian. You really just got to become a Catholic. One day the Jewish merchant comes over, knocks on the Christian's door and says, well, I decided I'm going to go see for myself. I'm going to go to Rome. And the Catholic guy says, don't go to Rome. I mean, don't go to Rome. You'll, you'll never become a Christian. No, he couldn't convince the guy. The Jewish guy went off to Rome, comes back, knocks on the door and says, I'm back and I'm now Catholic. And the Catholic guy says, you were in Rome, right? Yeah. Didn't you see the popes with their mistresses? Yeah. Didn't you see the cardinals with all this wealth? Yeah. And you became Catholic anyway? And the Jewish convert says to him, any institution this, corru this corrupt, this lasted this long, must be guided by the Holy Spirit. And... It's a joke, obviously, but it's, it's a joke with some truth in it. That is to say, it's hard to imagine any institution that's had as many downs as the Catholic Church had has survived. And again, there, there are more than a, mil, a billion people, more than one out of every seven people on the globe that still say this is the, the truest path to God. And, and, and that's, that's sort of my way of dealing with this. It's probably not very sophisticated theologically. But that's sort of the way I deal with it. Thanks. And can you talk about, uh, you know, suffering isn't uh, isn't easily marketable, right? Right. <laughs> and, that's uh, right. But you know, people talk about redemptive suffering, and we look at Saint Francis, and he had the stigmata, and we 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 look up to that, and. We think, you know, we go through Easter and, you know, the passion and we think about all that suffering. And it, it's it's easy to say, I don't, I, I, I'm in a consumer society. I'd prefer not to suffer. You know, I'd prefer not to be right. a masochist. And you, and I don't know if you've, you're familiar with the, uh, I'm reading a book right now, uh, With God in Russia, uh, the Jesuit priest. No, I haven't read it. The Jesuit priest who went to, uh. Russia and decided he was he was he was he was American and he decided he was gonna he was called to go to Russia and he ends up in Siberia and he's just you know going through all this torment and mm -hmm. so what is there you know I mean I, I know that's maybe an answer answer to the why does God allow suffering he well he suffered yep. with us and he told us to love other people but can can you can you make some sense out of that? I, before I even try, let, let me let me give you the opposite answer of of what you're asking. Let, give the opposite of what you're answering me. I mean, in in many ways, I think it's fair to say that it's it's the 
the sort of Job answer at the end. Um, and we don't really have an answer. Why, you know, why did this person get cancer? Uh, why was this hurt person hit by a truck? Why was that person in that damn supermarket yesterday in Colorado? And so on and so forth. I think if we start playing that game, we'll get lost. Um, you know, the nicest person I know you know, has been crippled all of her life or whatever. I don't think we probably ought to judge for other people what their life experience has been for them. We read it from the outside as something that we, could, we couldn't imagine tolerating. And yet, you know, I, and, and I, I go through this all the time. I mean, I, I grew up a you know, middle-class kid in Indianapolis, Indiana, white male, right? And here I am in South Sudan, or here I am in the jungle of Sri Lanka, or wherever it might be, and I say, God, if I'd have been born here, you know, I don't have very good eyesight, and I'm not very well coordinated, I might not have lived to be six years old, let alone 77. And it's easy to do all that, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing to think about. But I think if we're trying to explain suffering, I mean, we can explain it theologically. It's, it's a human condition because our condition is sinful. The question is, I think to use Martin Luther King's phrase, is we have to recognize that suffering can be redemptive. It can call us away from various things. And when I visit those kids in Vietnam, to me, they are, they are suffering greatly. I don't know what their experience is. And I think we very often kid ourselves when we say, oh, my God, if I were in this situation, I want to jump off a bridge. I don't think we should say things like that. I don't think we know that. There might be people who look at me and say, gosh, you know, he was sort of a scrawny kid and he's kind of clumsy and he, you know, he doesn't see very well and he's got his hearing aids in now and he's had heart surgery, he's got diabetes. God, if, I, if that were me, I'd just be depressed all the time. I'm not depressed all the time, and I don't think anybody can speak for how they would respond to the to the to the body and and the experiences that I got in my life. And I think that you know the the one thing that I do think is important for any any kind of religious tradition is we have to sort of realize what's beyond our scope of understanding. I mean, I think this is, for example, the great genius of my favorite poet, Dante Alighieri. I mean, Dante's a really smart guy. He's read as Aristotle. He's read as Thomas Aquinas. He's, he's, read, he's read as Cicero. He's read as Livy and all these sort of things. And he loves them and values them. And he understands the importance of reason. And then what he has to learn is we need to use reason for everything reason can do for us. And then we need to accept mystery. And one of those moments comes when Dante is in a part of heaven where he finds there are two pagans, a priest that's mentioned in the Iliad, and a Roman emperor. And Dante's being guided by a saint, a woman who lives in heaven, right? And after she explains who these people are, Dante says, how can this be? Meaning, this is, this is, over, this is over my head. After all the stuff I've learned and studied, it, how can pagans be in heaven? And her answer is, you know, I live in heaven. I don't know either. 
that it's accepting mystery. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do everything that reason will allow us to solve. But we have to draw a line and say, uh, reason isn't capable of dealing with this. Just like we try to talk about the difference between science and religion. There, I mean, most, most Christians certainly recognize there's an important role for science to play. I've got my vaccines. But we also know that the world's problems don't get solved by science. And the best scientists, Einstein and a lot of others, sort of know where that, they sort of have a sense of where that boundary is between what they can help to fix and what sort of, to use Barack Obama's phrase, beyond my pay scale. And I think for academics especially, that's a very hard thing to learn. It's very hard for me to learn because I'm good at all this knowledge stuff. You know, I get all the diplomas and certificates and awards to prove it. And it's hard to say, I don't know, I don't think I will ever know. I don't believe I am capable of understanding this. I have to accept things that I can't understand. And, and, and therefore, to be comfortable with mysteries that I have no way to solve. I mean, if we got mystery and we can solve it, we should solve it. But there are mysteries we can't solve. I, I, and, and I think it's important simply to, to, to say this is where I surrender. This is what, this is what faith is all about. I, I believe in God. I believe in God's promises. And I haven't got it all figured out. And why this happened rather than that, I have no idea. But I have to accept it and move on with what I can change and what I can deal with and what I can understand. That's probably not a very satisfactory answer, but that's my best answer. Well, uh, that book of Job. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> book of Job isn't entirely satisfactory, but it's it's in the Bible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly, and 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 it's it's always again, you know, for my students when I taught Job for years and years and years, they're always sort of disappointed at the end. They they, they want they want it to all be figured out at the end, right? That's what we want. That's what we want in, in, in our history book. We want to know what caused the Second World War. That's what we want in, in uh, you know, our, our, when we read Hamlet. Why, you know, why did Shakespeare make Hamlet do that? You know, those are the kinds of things we want to do, especially in an academic setting. And when you get to the end of Job, you know, it is, it is a mystery. And I, I think it's understanding the principle of mystery and sort of, in many ways, again, Dante talks about this, having a sense that there are certain places we probably just can't go, where the intellect can't take it, and we ought to recognize that. I think Dante would be the first guy to say, we want to push intellect and reason to their limits. We also have to accept their limits. And I, I guess uh, an awkward topic, uh, or a weird topic for me is, uh, you know, you, you think about Lent, you think about repentance, and and the fact that you know, you know, uh, just the the fact that we're it feels like we're permanently falling. Like you know, like people make you know resolutions all the time that I'm going to do a little better. I'm going to get out of this habitual sin. I'm going you know, and 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 how do you, how do you break that cycle? Like how do you like what is, what is repentance and what is like what's how does that actually lead to like sustainable improvement? Yeah, I, I don't think we do ever break the cycle. Uh, I mean, 
I think anybody who says, you know, I haven't committed a sin this month is probably fooling him or herself. I mean, it is, it is something we do. We repent. We start again. We may do better. We may, we may get beyond certain other kinds of sins. But, you know, there is a wonderful monk back in the 4th century who was living in the desert of Egypt. And he, and he, he wrote this. You know, when, when I became a monk, I was, I was greedy and I was a glutton. And I really, really struggled with gluttony and greed living out here in the desert. And slowly, over many, many years, I was able to get beyond that. And then I took pride in the fact that I conquered those two sins, and pride's the worst sin of all. Because once you're proud of having defeated gluttony and lust, you are in, or, or you know, the other sins like that, basically pride is, after all, seen as the, the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. So we, we never move beyond it. The question is whether we can improve, whether we can turn in certain directions, whether we can find alternative ways to express ourselves that, that try to do some positive good in the world. I mean, you know, you, you, if, if you go to bed at night and say, well, I just did all wonderful things for the world, God must be really proud of me today, probably you haven't thought much about your day. Or you only looked at the highlights reel. And I think we have to be realistic enough to know that. But A, we believe in grace. And B, I think we do believe that with God's help, we can improve. We can, we can make adjustments. We can compensate for things. Okay, you know, I really, really like money. You know, I'm really, really greedy or whatever it is. Uh, I always picture Silas Martyr uh, sort of running his hands through his gold every night. And, um, you know, there are ways that we can look to say, you know, if I could just give up some of that money, I could do something good for another person. Silas Martyr has this happen ultimately because he ends up having this child. It's not his child. Biologically, he finds his child and becomes devoted to this child. And even though his money had been stolen, he sort of forgets about it rather than moans about it. I mean, we are capable of changing. We're capable of turning away from certain sins, certain sins. We do that in a lot of different ways. We, some, we get, to some extent, we do have will. We can will our way away from certain things. You know how people do that. If they say, you know, I'm greedy and never want to give anybody money, you sort of, you sort of do a kind of gift to a charity where the money's taken automatically, you don't notice it, and you sort of forget about it. So you're being generous uh, because you set up a structure that allowed you to be generous without being miserable all the time. You know, we all make these kinds of adjustments in life. And I think that's good. And I think there is moral and spiritual progress. But the idea that there's a straight upward line without a lot of zigs and zags up and down, I think probably we're kidding ourselves if we really believe that. I'm just reading tonight, because it's the Feast of Oscar Romero, one of, one of my favorite saints, and uh, a saint whose shrine I visited in, in El Salvador recently. And, you know, until a year or two before his death, he was sort of on the side of, you know, sort of comfortable Catholicism in a pretty corrupt country. And it was really only after he became Archbishop of San Salvador, which was two years before his death, I think, that he really began to understand what his role was as a bishop and what his role was as a Christian. 
and it came late. And of course, he paid for it with his life. But, you know, we, we, we have to, I think we live in hope that we, we, have, we have a gracious God, a God that without grace we're all gone. I mean, you know, let's go right back to St. Paul. We don't have to be around the bush on that one or argue with Luther or anything else on that one. That, you know, we need God's grace. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't have the kind of perfection that would entitle us to a slot in the presence of God forever. But we can work toward it and with God's help and with the guidance of scripture and tradition, guidance of our, you know, if, if you're lucky, you know, you have good sermons on Sunday morning, you read things, you pray, all these sort of things. I mean, there is, there is room for us to grow knowing that we can never completely put away sin. And we don't have to be comfortable with that. We shouldn't be comfortable with that. But we do need to recognize it's part of the human condition. So I guess a final thought. Could you share some of the brightest moments of church history in your fa- in, in examples of, you mentioned St. Francis, you know, things that your favorite saints did that, you know, basically saved the church, saved Christianity, saved, sure. saved the world? I, I, I can give you a few. I mean, I've got, I've yeah. got a lot. Um, yeah. But... Probably, you know, once once the Constantinian Church is set up, I, 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 you know, I don't, I'm not going to deal with biblical figures now. They're they're in a sense too easy. Um, I think Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604, probably was the greatest pope ever. Uh, we know him because his his name is in Gregorian chant. But Gregory the Great did so many things to sort of get the church. Uh, settled into the new world where there is a Rome, but there's no Roman Empire. And he had had experience traveling to Constantinople. He was a great writer and theologian. He really respected the monastic tradition. He wrote A Life of St. Benedict that probably did more to publicize Benedictine monasticism than anyone else. So I think if we look back at popes, where Gregory had to do some things that we would call political and secular in Rome because there was no Roman government to do it. And by golly, uh, you've got you've got tribes of Germans coming to attack the city. So he had, he's the guy that had to provide for walls and water and, you know, so let's get the food inside the walls. He had to do all that, which is which may have, you know, 300 years later led to a lot of papal abuse of political power. But basically, Gregory as both uh, the shepherd of a flock there and as the leader of the universal church, I think he was probably the greatest pope ever. So he's on my list. Um, I'm also I'm also a great lover of St. Benedict. Um, Benedict lived just a little bit before Gregory and lived in Rome for a while, lived as a hermit and became a monk and ultimately wrote his own rule that we call a rule of St. Benedict that monks still live under today. That's what the Trappists who live four miles from me I'll live under today. And there's a, there's a book that came out a few years ago. I didn't like the book very much, but I like the idea. It was, it's, it's called something like Lessons of St. Benedict for CEOs. And the, the rule of St. Benedict, which is pretty short, is an extraordinary guide to Christian living. And also it can, it can be in 
large part translated into living in the world. So, for example, you know, we think of monks being really, really austere. And Benedict says, monks shouldn't drink wine. You know, alcohol is just not for monks. But I know that that's not going to be followed. So here are the regulations we ought to try to follow. That, that he combines a, a really Christian zeal with a lot of common sense. And, you know, a lot of Christians have a lot more zeal than common sense, and some have a lot more common sense than zeal. And Benedict, I think, has a balance that's pretty right. And, uh, and so Benedict is one of my favorite saints. Obviously, St. Francis is. To me, he's the greatest of, of all the non-biblical saints. And probably, if you count the number of churches dedicated to non-biblical saints around the world, not all of which are Catholic, by the way, you'll find them Episcopal churches, St. Francis will win as, as sort of the, the place that has the most church names. And, of course, you can imagine how thrilled I was when Cardinal Bergoglio chose the name Francesco, Francis to to when, when he became Pope um, and uh, I think he has been a very Franciscan Pope there have been members of the Franciscan order who have been Pope before that one, one of whom certainly wasn't very Franciscan at all during the Renaissance but Pope Francis it seems to me is doing what every Christian needs to do he's taking first of all the model and teaching of Christ He's looking at how somebody 1,200 years later tried to live that out in a very different world. Francis's world was not the world of Jesus. And then I think what Pope Francis is doing is trying to say, now, I want to, I, obviously I'm following Christ first, but I think, ben, I think Francis was such a great follower of Christ that I'm going to see how he adapted the charism of Jesus to a different world, and I've got to do that to still a different world, and I've got a different job. Francis was a poor friar. I'm, I'm the Pope. So I'm going to try to be, in the truest sense of the word, a Franciscan Pope. And I think, in general, uh, he's been extraordinarily successful. Some of the things are obvious. You know, he uh, carries his own briefcase. Uh, he doesn't wear fancy gold crosses. Those sorts of things. But I think in much more substantial ways. When Pope Francis had his 80th birthday, he had a birthday breakfast with homeless people from the streets of Rome. Can you think of another pope who would have done that? What a, what a message that is to the world. Just like the message of John Paul II, you know, forgiving the man who shot him. That's another one of those highlight moments in church history. Now, this will be more controversial, but... One of Pope Francis's contemporaries was Pope Innocent III, who was probably the most powerful political pope ever. And although there are a lot of failures in Innocent III, I think, and in the papacy of the 13th century, this pope with power and wealth and everything else saw something in Francis that he wanted to support. And Francis, this poor man of God, saw something in Innocent. And they literally got together and they were part of the same church and in the largest sense on the same page although living radically different lives and Hans Kuhn when he writes the history of the church says you know that was the moment if innocence could have sort of stepped off his throne and embraced more of Francis that the Catholic Church might have gone a very different direction 
but innocent, you know, at the, at the last minute sort of couldn't pull the plug. But it's a moment where such different figures saw Christ in one another. And I think, I think therefore, they, not only is Francis my, my sort of favorite, but Francis and Innocent, oddly enough, I also think are in some ways my most interesting pair of Christians at the same time. Um, there are a lot of other of my favorites. I'm, I'm very fond of St. Damien of Molokai, um, the man who went to live among the lepers, because I think those dramatic gestures are important because what you see with Damien, what you saw with Francis, although is, is the fact that they, they lived in many ways by choice to be living very deprived lives and they were joyful. And they, were, they weren't saying, oh, I hate every minute of this, but I'm going to stick it out with the lepers. That's not what Francis said. That's not what St. Damien said. And I think that's so important. There's a novel about Francis written by Nikos Kazantzakis, who wrote Sword of the Greek and the Last Temptation of Christ. And the, 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 the theme of the novel is this is, the, the, the fiction rather, is that this is the memoirs of Francis's buddy, uh, Brother Leo. And at one point, Brother Leo says, you know, Francis will just eat, you know, whatever slop is put into his bowl. And then he says, well, I can do that. And Francis sleeps on rocks with a rock for a pillow, and I can do that. But Leo says, the difference is when I wake up after one of those nights of sleeping on rocks, I'm grumpy, and Francis is joyful. He accepts the rock as a pillow from God. And he said, that's the hard part. The hard part's not doing it. The hard part's doing it and being joyful. And I think we find that in Francis, the saint. I think, I think we find it in Francis, the pope. I think we find it in St. Damien and a lot of other saints. And, and to me, that's, that's one of the great joys I've learned from some of my favorite saints. It's not that they didn't suffer. It's not that they didn't even deprive themselves of things I can't imagine depriving myself of. And yet, in that choice they make, they, remember, these, Francis didn't have to sleep with a rock for a pillow. He could have gone out and gotten some leaves or had somebody go get him a you know, bag of, 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 of wool or something. But he chose to do that and nevertheless was happy. He rejoiced in what he had rather than moaned about what he didn't have. That's a pretty good message for the 21st century and probably for any century. Great. And can you uh, maybe give a plug for your your books, your works, your your foundation, where folks can find that? Like, sure. What, what some of your, I, I'd your be glad to. So this is the commercial time, right? Sure. Yes. Um, this is like the beginning and the end of the PBS News Hour, right? When they <laughs> rattle off all that sort of stuff. Well, I wrote a biography of Francis that's still in print. It's called Francis of Assisi, The Way of Poverty and Humility. And it, you can find it on Amazon, uh, maybe at a local bookstore. It's published by a company in Oregon. It's not the original publisher of it, called Whipf and Stock. Whipf is W-I-P-F and Stock, S-T-O-C-K. So it's available and not very expensive. In paperback, it's short. It was part of a series called The Way of the Christian Mystics. So it's about 140, 150 pages. The bibliography is 30, 30 years old. Um, but i got to tell you a story. The other day, not the other day, last, last year actually, I was asked at the last minute to do an oral book review for a, a, a club here in Geneseo. I do it every year, and they just hadn't asked me, or maybe somebody canceled, I don't remember. 
and I didn't really have time to pick a book and read it. So I said, can I review my own book? Well, you know, when you write a book, you don't sit down and read it afterwards. So I hadn't read the book in almost 30 years. And I was really nervous about reading it. I thought, oh, I'm not going to like it, or I'm going to, that chapter, I, I wouldn't say that if I were writing today. By and large, I liked it better than I thought I would. I had a couple of criticisms of it, but I, I kind of liked it and, and was pleased with the fact that more or less the Francis I described as the Francis I would describe today. Uh, so that's the book. I've written some other books. They're really mostly for scholars and probably not interesting. The one exception to that is one of my colleagues, his name is Ron Herzman, H-E-R-Z-M-A-N, and I wrote a book together called The Medieval Worldview, published by Oxford University Press, and it's now in its third edition. Uh, so if you, if people would like a, an introduction to the Middle Ages, uh, and we have a chapter on Francis and the Mendicant, we have a chapter on monasticism, uh, Ron and I are both Catholic, so it has, it has sort of a church history basis to it more than some books like that would. Uh, but we also have a chapter on Byzantium. We have a chapter on medieval Islam. But I would recommend that. So it's the Medieval Worldview, third edition, Oxford University Press. Again, you can also get that on Amazon. Um, my foundation has an easy foundation website, www.billcookfoundation.org. And it's got 10 little videos that a classmate of mine from college made. He runs an advertising agency. They're about three minutes each that describe some of the things that we do. The most recent newsletter is up, which is focused on some things we do in Uganda. And I have to say this, there is, of course, a donate button. Uh, so, you know, you have the options of donating by sending a check or transferring money directly from your bank to, to the foundation or... Uh, doing it by credit card online. So, as I said, we've we've been very fortunate. We have some very generous donors, people I've known in the past. I've done a lot of tours in Europe, and some of them have been fairly expensive tours. I didn't organize them. I just led them. And so I got to know a lot of people of means, and uh, some of them have been very generous. So each of the last three years, we've raised about $500,000, and we work in 30 countries. Uh, we work in uh, places like Bolivia, uh, where we work with street kids in the capital of La Paz. Uh, we work in Guyana in South America. Uh, we've, 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 done, we've done a project in Haiti. Uh, we work in, in the Balkan Peninsula, primarily with Roma people, gypsy people, who are very badly treated. And then we're in, I think, 10 countries in Africa. And we're in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, India, Sri Lanka, and the Philippines. I just sent some money to the Philippines the other day. Let me just tell you as another example of what we do. I I got a donor who said I I, I maybe had an uncle or something who was a who was an Augustinian. I don't remember what his other uncle, but he said I'd be glad to give some money if I could give it to something that the Augustinians do. Well, I didn't know anything at the time about anything the Augustinians did, but I did know that the Augustinians were the biggest order in the Philippines. So I went to the Philippines, and I talked to some people and wandered around, and I, I went to the Augustinian church, and they took me to a slum, one of the really horrid, horrific slums, and this priest, whose name is Father Dante, how can you turn down Father Dante, said, here's the deal. We work in this elementary and high school, and what happens is when kids get to be 12, 13, 14, they just drop out of school. Why don't we choose a group and watch over them, give them backpacks, a snack every day, 
a small allowance, uh, you know, flip-flops and whatever. And let's see how they do. So we chose seven. He chose 72 kids. And the, the, without anything we did, about half of them would have dropped out of school in the next two years. Two years later, 63 of those 72 were still in school. So we did that. And then I promised all those kids who were still in school, if you go to university, if you can get into university, we'll pay your way. And now we have five kids in university that have already graduated from high school and we're going to have some others. University is pretty cheap, so it doesn't cost us a lot more money, but it, you know, it, it's more than they could ever afford. So that's just another example of the kind of thing we do. We're working in a slum. We're trying to get kids into universities. I had dinner with the university students about a year ago in the Philippines. And, you know, one wants to be a nurse and one wants to be an engineer. They're, they all chose different things to study. But I'll tell you what was interesting. I invited them to the hotel I was staying in, and we had dinner in the hotel. None of them had ever been in a restaurant before. They didn't have the concept of a menu. And here are all these things, and you can choose what you want. And, if, you know, think about this. These are bright university students, 19, 20 years old, and they'd never been in a restaurant because of the fact they come from this really horrific slum called Baseco in the Philippines. So that's, that's, a, that's another example of the kind of thing we do. We try to be creative, find out, you know, this, this Augustinian priest said, well, this I think is the best way you could spend some of your money. He knows more about the Philippines and this slum than I ever will. I took his word for it. And now we've got five of those kids in university and most of the rest of them are at least going to graduate from high school. So that's the kind of stuff I spend my life doing. And, um, there's not a much better job than doing stuff like that. And I do it only because I have donors who help me do it. Great. Do you have any, uh, is there a, have you ever almost been martyred for your work? Um, yeah, once. Um, I was working in Cameroon. Again, this is how it happened. One of my former students was in the Peace Corps in Cameroon and then stayed in Cameroon and started a very tiny foundation that didn't have very much money. So I went to see what was up and Cameroon is four-fifths French-speaking and one-fifth English-speaking. Long story, not worth telling now. But the English-speaking part was where I was working and it's an area where they feel great anger at the federal government because the federal government's controlled by French and for example, they will have uh, French-speaking judges appointed to judgeships in the English-speaking part of Cameroon. There's been a lot of tension, and I knew that. And I was there, and on the Thursday, the news came out that on Sunday, a group of people were gonna declare independence from the Cameroon. They had their own flag, their own name for their country, and there was gonna be a declaration of independence. And the French government said, after Friday, nobody comes out of their house. If you're if you're in that English-speaking part on Friday, you're going to be there till Monday. And with this Declaration of Independence coming, I really wanted to get out of there. So they they said they made an announcement: you got to get out by sundown on Friday. So the student I was with and I got to the bridge to cross over into the French part at one o'clock in the afternoon. And the soldier said, "Sorry, we've changed the time to noon. You're going to be here until Monday. No hotel, no town, just." right right there in the country and i i called the u.s embassy and they were not very interested in helping me i i, I don't know why 
and so I'm sitting there. I don't, what am I going to do? Four days. Um, I don't even have my bag with me. My main suitcase was back in the Capitol where I left it to come to this remote part. And about two or three hours after sitting there, one of the soldiers fired his gun. I think he fired it in the air. I don't care. I hear a gunfire. That's enough for me. I called the embassy again, explained that, but also, how do, we, how do I be polite about this? Exaggerated my situation a bit. I sort of, I was actually flying to Brussels from the city I was going to in Douala, Cameroon, but I said I was flying to see my cardiologist. That part wasn't true. But anyway, the U.S. embassy contacted the Cameroon army and sent a general to come get the two of us and take us back to Douala. And we were stopped on 21 uh, roadblocks uh, to get back to where we were going. And that was pretty scary uh, because it could have blown up. And there was some violence, and the violence has gone on ever since. In fact, our original project, the whole village was destroyed. We put in some solar panels in a school. They've been destroyed. And now those students are internal exiles in Cameroon, and we're supporting them to go to school. So that was that was sort of as we used to say when I was a kid. That's the hairiest situation I think I've been in. Great. So can you, what I guess, uh, on parting, can you uh, give some advice uh, to to folks on a prayer life, getting closer to God through prayer? Yes, I think that it is. First of all, I'm I'm a go to mass on Sunday guy. Uh, I think it's very important to have a liturgical prayer, to pray together, uh, to pray in the presence of the Eucharist. Uh, I think I think that's important. I think it's hard to maintain a Christian prayer life or a Christian life without any sort of connection to some form of communal life, because the Christians, Christ, we're a community. Um, uh, you know, the church means the people, and um, and and so I think that's one important thing. Uh, I think it helps to have some structure that might be praying every night before you go to bed. It may be saying a prayer for five minutes in the morning. I think most people who try to structure too much prayer during the day, if they have a job and three kids and all that sort of stuff, I think it's very hard to try to structure too much. I mean, you know, the monks pray together eight times a day, but the monks don't have kids to take care of and they don't have a job to go to. So I think that sometimes, you know, there used to be, in, even in the Middle Ages, a sort of, you know, holy people feeling guilty that they didn't pray as much as the monks. Well, the monks have this real call to a particular kind of communal prayer. I also think that we very often draw too strict a line between prayer and action. Uh, whether, I mean, for me, when I am with a, you know, a disabled child in Vietnam, or one of the Down syndrome children in Peru, that's prayerful time for me. I may be talking, I may not be on my knees, I may not be looking up at the sky, I may not even be directly invoking God, but that is prayer. Uh, I, I am in communion with God through that child. Or I spend time on Sunday mornings when I'm in Nairobi uh, at a feeding program. So I'm taking food to, to guys who are in their 30s they're all they're addicted to glue they're going to die before they're 40 and i just hand them a place of rice and beans that's that's what we serve them but i stop and talk to all of them they can't even understand me doesn't matter um but the fact
fact that I'm spending time with him, I slap him on the back, uh, you know, or, or, you know, give him a friendly punch on the shoulder or whatever. That's prayer. I communicate with God through that uh, because they really are, to me, sort of sources to lead me to God because these are people that smell bad and look bad and, again, are sniffing glue. But, you know, in that situation, when I'm with them, they're just my brothers and sisters. And that's prayer. And I think we don't want to say, oh, I don't ever pray or I don't pray more than five minutes a day because I'm really busy. When, when you're doing the right thing with the right people, and it can be your own children. It can be the kid next door who, whose dad maybe doesn't hang around very much or isn't there. We pray in all kinds of ways other than on our knees or with our hands folded or looking up to God. I think we need to integrate the notion of, you know, communicating with God and living Christian lives on earth and see those are not two parts of one whole. They are the whole. And so, uh, yes, to have a prayer life is is really important, uh, but it doesn't mean just that you're on your knees or you are saying the station of the cross or praying a rosary. That's one way. But we also understand the prayerfulness in, in the in the way we interact with people, especially those who are among the least respected in the world. This concludes another episode of the Glorium Deo podcast. To learn more about Professor Cook and his foundation, visit BillCookFoundation.org.